Hello swimmers and welcome to Torpedo Swim Talk. Today's podcast guest is six-time world record holder of ultramarathon swims, Tammy Van Wisser. Thank you, Hi, Tammy. Welcome to the podcast. Oh, thanks for having me, Danielle. It's very exciting to be here. Yeah, I know. It's It's been a, a few years since we've um, seen each other face-to-face, but it's lovely to be chatting to you. Oh, it's been so long, hasn't it? It was back in our competition days when we were young and fit. <laughs> oh, yes, yes, that's right. <laughs> it was a while ago. How have you been coping um, during the COVID lockdown? Um, look, it's been a, a trying time, I guess. Um, I've got a, a 12-year-old daughter and she's been uh, sort of a bit stressed by, you know, being in grade six and, and you know, doing that uh, online school was uh, quite tricky. For me, um, I personally didn't find it too difficult. I guess it's um, I, I reflect back and think it's kind of like marathon swimming to some degree because you're isolated when you're sort of doing a marathon swim and you're in your head a lot. So you, I'm used to spending lots of time on my own and being quite comfortable with that so for me it wasn't too bad personally but I think just in a family scenario it was very difficult mentally um you know just coping with uh being together and (laughs) and trying to do some online learning at that time so (laughs) I became I guess I went back to um to trying to lucky for we have google because I went back to learning how to do fractions and things online so it's been many years since I've been at school so that I could help her do her maths because that was the one thing she was really struggling with so it was a bit bit comical really. (laughs) (laughs) I think there was a lot of a lot of um, parents that became teachers during that time as well wasn't there oh so many so many and as I said you know my my uh learning was a bit rusty from being so so long ago so I just love Google the fact that you can go back and look up something and remember how to do formulas and so luckily it all did come back to me so that was pretty good yeah um, that's good (laughs) oh well um, what I was going to to ask you was, what what age did you first start swimming? So how old were you when you got into it uh, as a youngster? Uh, so. So my parents actually had me what they called drown proofed back in the day when I was six months of age which was quite unusual back then. So mm-hmm. I don't think there were too many places that were offering drown proofing, but um, mum and dad actually took me down to Harold Holtpool, I think it was at the time. So <laughs> there, there's another irony. <laughs> but uh, so I did that for a number of years. <laughs> I know. Yeah, yeah, I know. It's quite crazy. So, so uh, I, I, you know. We should, we should actually say for our, oh, sorry, I was going to say we should actually say for our um, international listeners, we have a pool in Melbourne um, which is named after a Prime Minister called Harold Holt um, and it is a bit of a, 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 yes, a little bit of a joke in the fact, not a joke because it's terrible, but it, um, he's suspected to be have been drowned off um, Portsea. Portsea or Chevron Beach, I think, down Portsea. That's right. Yeah, and actually never been found. But, yeah, this pool was that Was this pool named after him? Before he passed it, or before he went missing, or oh, that, that's something I'll we'll have I'm to do a Google sure. search for. <laughs> I'm not sure. I have to do a Google search on that. Yes. <laughs> anyway, back. Yes, back to your story. Yeah. So, so I spent a number of years there. You know, as a youngster, just sort of getting familiarised with water, and then, and then I think I stopped swimming when I was about five, and then restarted again when I was about ten. And I guess look, we had a backyard pool, and Mum and Dad wanted me to be really safe. I mean, I was great in the water, but it was a time to sort of formally learn the strokes and so uh, I I actually didn't want to do swimming at that time I have a very strong recollection of not wanting to go to 
lessons purely because um, I was overweight as a child, so teased quite a lot at school and um, didn't particularly have a high regard for myself in terms of being a sporting person. But it was um, non-negotiable for me, so uh, I was uh, made to go to lessons, no choices there, which I'm really grateful for right. now. <laughs> but I guess it all... Yeah, of course. <laughs> yeah, but it snowballed from there. I sort of lost the weight and, you know put the strokes together and was actually asked to join like the junior squad. So I started, you know, once or twice a week in junior squad and then sort of up the ante and um, ended up swimming down at North Lodge with Jim O'Doherty and um, competing, then started competing in the States, you know, and starting to have some aspirations to actually be a serious swimmer and 5 a.m. starts and all that wonderful stuff where mum and dad were probably thinking, I wish we didn't put her into swimming now because they had to get up early and take me to the pool. Because <laughs> <laughs> oh, from that time, I, I remember you as a really fast, fantastic 100-metre freestyler. How did that snowball into you getting into marathon swimming because they're sort of like opposite ends of the scale I remember you being a really fast sprinter yeah look I I was a good sprinter but I like I had a two-beat kick so I guess I always had the endurance and one thing that always stood out in training because I I was one of those kids that really loved training I just enjoyed the training and the harder the better and and I remember many times that you know after the end of a two-hour training session we'd get up and do some some race pace stuff at the end and I'd actually do pbs at the end of training so I guess Looking back, I already had that tendency for endurance. Like, you know, Mr. O'Doherty always said to me, I can't wear you out. Like it was just one of those things. So I I did love the sprints and I I wish I could have been a really good sprinter. I I, I really enjoyed that part of it. And I really envied the sprinters in the sprinters lane because, you know, being a distance meant obviously you're in the distance lane and you got five times as much work as the the lazy old sprinters. Um, (laughs) But I guess the transition happened because sort of at the same time that I started um, competition swimming, I joined Life Saving Club down at Black Rock. And so I was kind of doing life-saving carnivals on the weekend as well as sort of competing in the, you know, serious pool world. And I really started to enjoy that probably more so than, you know, the competitions where I guess I was noticing only, you know, 10th for second improvement, 100th for second improvement. So for me, you know, that I, I guess I got a bit jaded with that. So I started to really have a lot more fun down at Life Saving and through that I sort of joined up with the you know the circuit of the open water swims you know the lawn pier to pub the 1.2k swims that started to become a really big thing at that time um you know every weekend pretty much you could find yourself in the summer months a a nice swim to do out in the open water and that was a lot of fun and I had a lot of success with that so I guess that's sort of what got me hooked into marathon swims or open water swims to start with. And then one day down at our life-saving club, I remember there was a notice on the wall and it was for a 20-kilometre swim from Beaumaris to Frankston. And it was the first of its kind. You know, we'd had nothing like that here. I'd never heard of marathon swimming before. And um, I I just thought I'd enter it just to see whether I could, A, make the distance and... um, I guess, you know, I, I entered and I was a bit nervous the, the night before the race and, you know, probably shouldn't have done this, but I hired the movie Jaws at the time and <laughs> my phobia of sharks. <laughs> Why was, did you do that? I don't know. It was a very silly thing to do. So it wasn't uh, exactly confidence <laughs> building when I when I sort of started the race. And um, 
it, it was a it was a great start. It was Australia Day 1986. I remember it very well. And we started off from Kiefer's Pier at Bow Morris, and it was really lovely, flat conditions. In fact, the bay looked like a swimming pool. And so, you know, I started off and I did really well. And the intervals where we were feeding was um, there was piers every five kilometres down the four piers that you could right. stop and feed at. And my my mum and dad were sort of waiting at the end of each pier to feed me and. Back in those days, we knew nothing about nutrition for marathon swimming, so they were waiting there with Mars bars and a chocolate big M, you know. <laughs> and, and, and so, you know. Just what you want sloshing around in your tummy. Correct, correct. Although I must admit I did really like it because of the salt. It really it was nice to have something very sweet. So, so look, you know, I got to about the yeah. 10K mark and then the conditions really changed and, you know, we had this swell and chop and short, sharp chop because the bay is so um, shallow that um, the chop was was quite horrendous and I remember um you know I got to a point uh, at the 15 kilometer mark the last pier and mum and dad obviously saw how bad I was looking and they said to me you know look we don't blame you if you want to get out right now you've just done such an incredible job to get this far um we can see that you know you're not in good shape and I was really I was experiencing pain like I never had before my arms were aching and my throat and tongue had swollen up so much from the salt water and it was kind of like being wow. in a boxing match you know the ways the chop was just coming from everywhere so I I thought about it for a second but I guess you know I I also had that gratitude for my parents at that point in time thinking you know look they've done so much for me that you know I'm not going to pull a pin just yet I'm, I'm going to sort of see if I can go for another half an hour and see how I'm faring after that so headed off from the pier it was Seaford Pier headed off and um, swam for half an hour and then I got a, a message sent out to me by um, somebody on a on a ski they paddled out to me and it was a message from my parents and the message was that I was in third place and that there were two boys in front of me and that I was catching them and so I guess that changed my whole mental perspective you know I was 17 years of age I enjoyed catching the boys whether it was in or out of the water so (laughs) it was like wow that's it I'm off (laughs) so six hours and 20 minutes later I finished my first marathon swim and in fact the conditions had gotten so bad that um, 21 of the 29 starters had actually pulled out so it was it was pretty bad towards the end Um, yeah and when I finished it you know I guess not only was there a great sense of relief and you know I was ecstatic but you know I'd never never dreamed that I'd win win the event so um, that was something amazing and then I was approached by Ted Tolberg who was sort of involved in um, the marathon swimming side of um, Australian swimming and he said do you realize that this is a, a sport and that you can represent your country and you can travel overseas and you know this whole door of opportunity opened up so my mindset changed and I thought oh I'd like to explore this a bit more because I just you know I really thrived in that environment and I actually started to sort of get faster as the event got longer so you know a few things happened during that event that really showed me that I had potential and and you know the chance to be an endurance swimmer and I guess all the training that I'd done as a pool swimmer had really culminated into helping me be super fit and and you know it was all just a bonus. Yeah, I mean, it's amazing that you got to that that third um, third five k point, and your your tongue had swollen up, and you weren't feeling great, and your arms were aching, and whatever. And how did you have the mental sort of the mental awareness to get over that and to keep going? Was it just the message from your parents coming out, or was it 
you sort of dug in and you just wanted to finish it? Like how do you get over that kind of um, physical sort of discomfort to, to push through and get to your goal? Yeah, I, I think about that a lot because I guess I'd never really, you know, I'd, I'd never been put in that kind of position other than the only thing I can reflect back on is just through all the training. You know, when you do training, you know, you you, you really push through a lot and I, and I had pushed through a lot in training and like I said, I was a person that just absolutely loved the hard work in training and so always when, you know, a coach had asked me for more, I'd, you know, absolutely put in everything. So I guess I already had that that mindset of knowing that when you push through, you can feel better again, you know, in another five minutes time, things change. So you can go from your lowest point to feeling much better, you know, like a few minutes down the road, five, 10 minutes down the road. So I guess I already had that that mental and physical training just through the swimming. But for me, I guess it was a combination of also speaking to my parents and and having that chat and seeing them so proud and and thinking, you know, I really want to yeah. make them proud and and so I'm just going to hang in there and I and I set myself that that small goal again and I think throughout throughout my marathon swimming career setting small goals just finding something to keep you going for a short space of time is what has been the key to being able to complete you know the events because it's you're suffering and like I said your body experiences pain like oh it's to another level so it's all about the mind though it's the mind control and how how you can reframe that and refocus it and so I guess I've become a bit of a master at refocusing and reframing what my body's telling me and saying now I'm not going to listen this is the way I'm going to look at it and I'm just going to go for another you know 10 minutes half an hour I'm going to count my strokes I'm going to sing songs in my head anything that's a distraction so I guess it's a you know it's about that cognitive reframing and to me that's the absolute essential when you're caught in this kind of a position where you think that you just cannot get anything further out of yourself and we can always find more it's amazing what the human body is capable of both mentally and physically that when you're pushed to the brink and you think you can't go on if you can find that small reason to keep going and set that small goal um, it's amazing how much further you can go or how much more you can do yeah absolutely like I'm very interested in in that aspect of of your marathon career did you I know you've got those thoughts going through when you're doing the swim did you do any sort of mental rehearsal before any of your big swims no or was it mainly in the swim where you were sorry yeah no I was going to say no I didn't really do much mental rehearsal I guess again back in those days you you know now now um athletes get a lot of training in in you know mental rehearsal and and you know picture yourself finishing and the whole you know concentrating on the focus perspective but um I didn't know anything about that. So I guess it was just something that developed uh, naturally and I would in a swim think about how good it would be to finish and allow myself to envision a reward of some type like, you know, I I often thought to myself when I finish I'm just going to, you know, eat so much chocolate and I'm going to have a warm bath because I'm so cold. (laughs) So it's a very simple pleasures but I I actually could (laughs) see myself doing that at the end. So, So I guess that just happened quite naturally and, again, you know, that's another part that really helps you focus and keep going it's that mental reward of like when I finish I'm going to do this so there's lots of techniques that you can you can use and that you know you do end up using when you're swimming but for me it was just something that I guess developed naturally yes yeah that's a that's amazing to have that I think you know back in those days I think people that were successful in the way um in marathon swimming like you have those kind of natural um, abilities anyway. And now obviously we've put more of a label on it and people understand about mental rehearsal. But 
you obviously had that capacity within you and it just came naturally to think about those things. Yeah. And so that's that's just an amazing um, way of, yeah, I, moving forward with it. Yeah, I, I guess so. And, I look, I, I attribute a lot of it to my parents as well. I guess, look, my, um, my parents came out from Holland um, in the early 60s and my dad in particular, he lived through the tail end of the Second World War and I would often hear many stories of things that, that he had to go through as a young child. Like I remember him telling me that his dad um, walked 80 kilometres to go and get a loaf of bread for the, you know, the family of kids, six kids in the family. They had nothing to eat. Dad would go off and just walk 80 kilometres to go to the next town to go and see if he could get some bread. So many, many stories like that um, that he would, you know, recount to me. And I guess maybe that was sort of subconsciously also a way uh, of, of, training me I don't know whether he did that on purpose or you know whether that was just you know something that he wanted me to be aware of but perhaps that helped as well because it, it gives you a way to I guess reframe again when you've got this this focus um and you sort of think oh you know I can only do this but when you hear about other people and uh understand what they've been through and how horrific the conditions for that for them like being in wartime I couldn't even imagine being in wartime and you know I guess the fear and anxiety of living through uh, a war uh, would bring. So I guess I always thought to myself, I'm very lucky I'm not in that situation as well. So what I'm doing is really not life or death. It's just being able to push your body a bit further. So it's perspective. And I think, you know, having a perspective yes. is a really, really um, healthy thing, a good perspective as well. Yeah, absolutely. Um, just going back to something you said earlier when we were talking about your pool swimming and you have a two-beat kick, that obviously transfers really well into longer distance and marathon swimming. Did you need to change anything about your arm stroking um, as well, like your head, obviously head position to sight, but did anything else need to change to cross over to marathon swimming? Um, I guess the stroke wasn't as refined. You know, when your high elbow out of the water was, you know, something that we were really um, drilled upon when we were doing the pool swimming for efficiency, whereas open water, it was more a flick of the arm to sort of get over the waves. You didn't have to have as pretty a stroke. So I guess I adapted that just in the natural course of um, being out in the open water and realising that when you get in really severe chop it you know, it doesn't really help to have the perfect stroke. Um, so that was really about the only <laughs> yeah. thing. But the two-beat kick was really great. You know, that helped me tremendously because obviously I hardly use my legs when I do a, a marathon swim. I always just laugh and say, look, my, my legs are only there for balance, really. <laughs> and I guess depending on <laughs> depending on the water that you swim, because um, the other thing that changes is uh, the variance in whether you're swimming in. Obviously, salt water gives you more buoyancy, so you're, you've got a higher body position or you know for instance if you're swimming in fresh water well that's a totally different experience and and I tend to find that uh, you get a lot more drained it's it's so much harder keeping yourself afloat as well as propelling yourself forward so so different conditions so I guess one of one of the things about marathon swimming is that you have to be prepared for um, so many different variants during a swim that can occur. So, as I mentioned before, you can start in really calm conditions. It can turn um, the water temperature can drop. So, preparing for cold water is another aspect of it. Um, you know, just the the sea life as well, the mental aspect behind. You know, if you see things moving underneath you, how you handle all of that. So, there's many different variants. <laughs> so, I really I really like that about marathon swimming though because I guess you know I see pool swimming as, as being quite stagnant you know you're just following that black line up and down and and there's not really those outside challenges where
whereas marathon swimming presents, you know, you can, you've got to be ready for anything basically. It's a changing environment and it changes so quickly as well during the course of a, you know, a five or a 10 hour swim. You can get tides, waves, you know, weather changing, so many different variables there. Yes. Well, what kind of sea life have you come across in your, um, in your swims, what's the uh, the scariest thing? Uh, the scariest thing, uh, obviously, uh, sharks. And when I swam across Bass Strait, I, I actually didn't see uh, the shark, yeah. but there was a white pointer, you know, sort of in the vicinity. I had a shark cage built for the swim because I knew I was going to be out there for, right. you know, sort of 20 hours plus and that um, I had a strong possibility of doing most of the swim during the night because a lot of the research had shown that the conditions were calmer during the night. So I knew that that was most likely the scenario. So I was really scared about swimming <laughs> beside a boat in the middle of Bass Strait with no yeah. protection. So so there was, a, you know, a shark yeah. there. So I said, but luckily I didn't see it. But the worst one for me personally was when I swam uh, at New Zealand's Cook Strait from the north to the South Island. And you don't swim with the shark cage there, but it's, uh, oh, gee, it's a right. massive body of water, very, very deep. And uh, the the organiser tells you, you know, you don't need a shark cage here. Yes, there are sharks, but, you know, they're scared off by the noise of the engine of the boat. So I had to take his word for it. <laughs> <laughs> and I did my single crossing and I was, I was fortunate <laughs> enough to have a great, great swim, you know, one leg and managed to break the record. And I actually had thought, of doing a double crossing so turned around and just sort of started to swim back to the boat and sort of start the second crossing and they said to me look the conditions are changing and um tides are not great so it's better to abort and we'll you know think about another crossing another day so took the single crossing swam back to the boat climbed up the back and within sort of 30 seconds of me climbing up the ladder of the back of the boat there was like a three meter uh white pointer shark just swimming beside the boat and it was just fate that oh. I got up, you know. It was a bit like, wow, I can't believe I was yeah. right there. And I sort of said to the, you know, the race organiser, well, I thought you said they were scared off by the noise of the engine of the boat. What's wrong with this one then? Is he deaf or something? Like, you know. <laughs> oh, my goodness. It was just such a frightening experience. So, you know, luckily for me, uh, I got out and, and all's well. I've got all the fingers and toes. But yes. but that was certainly, a, you know, one of the <laughs> scarier moments in my career. <laughs> yes. And then so part of that mental sort of um I suppose, um, uphaul that you have during the swim, you, you have to put those kind of thoughts out of your mind, don't you? Because otherwise you, you wouldn't be able to continue on with the swim, thinking there are sharks underneath and whatever else there is. Correct. Stingray, jellyfish. Yep. Yeah, all those things, yeah. yeah, no. Look, I think, you know, the hardest part is, yeah, rationalising the mind because, you know, I always sort of say to myself, well, you know, look, you've got a, a higher chance of being in a car accident when you look at the statistics, but I guess that doesn't help when you're sort of out in the middle of the open water and you're getting tired and out, out of the corner of the peripheral of your goggles you see, you know, a shadow. <laughs> which happens with the light refraction, <laughs> you know, it happens all the time with the light refraction anyway under the water. And, of course, you know, you're, you're bored and you're looking for things. So so your mind manifests in different ways and being able to sort of bring that back and control it, uh, again, you know, is a difficult thing. But you, like I said, I try and just, again, you know, change my perspective and perhaps put on a good playlist song in my mind to keep me going and just try and take 
take that thought out of my head rather than focus on it because you, you just you know obviously that that being so paralyzed with fear means that you're not you're not performing at your best level so sometimes it can help and make you swim a bit faster maybe but uh <laughs> if you can utilize that fear well enough but yeah maybe. sharks are certainly one of those scarier things jellyfish you come across all the time and that's I guess something again you just have to get used to the the pain of being stung because I've been stung by jellyfish so many times, like, you know, lacerations across the face, on the on my lips, on the inside of my mouth. Um, they're the worst when they when they get inside your mouth, the tentacles. That's that's horrendous. And you've got no way to escape from them. There's just you just have to put up with it and deal with it and just keep going. So, you know, they're they're one of the probably nastier things in terms of um, being out and exposed in the open water for long periods of time. I've had a few seals sort of try and you join me for swim but the best thing was the dolphin so you know I I was swimming when I was swimming across oh. Bass Strait I I reached a point we I'd swam all during the night I'd been going for about 12 hours and conditions were horrendous we had sort of three meter swells which apparently according to my scallop fisherman who's been scalloping out in the Bass Strait for 30 years was quite a calm night <laughs> I was like, I was absolutely, I was shattered, you know, and sort of the sunrise (laughs) came and it calmed a little bit and, but I was just feeling really sick because I ingested so much salt water and again, I'd been thrown around so much and just belted by the waves and exhausted basically and um, had a moment where I had a cry in the goggles and thought about getting out and you know again had to sort of reframe the mind and yeah. find the strength to keep going so at that point in time I was that bad I, I the only thing I could concentrate on was counting my strokes and I just thought to myself I'm going to count my strokes count up to 20 and just start again and that's what I did and I've been swimming for about 15 minutes and all of a sudden I heard this loud sort of squeaking noise under the water like a clicking sound and um, I looked up to the yeah. big support boat and I could see the crew all pointing to something in the distance and I knew it couldn't be a shark because they didn't have the big three oh three rifle out that we had on board just in case of emergencies. <laughs> and, and sure enough, you know, all of a sudden I just had this pod of um, – 30 wild bottlenose dolphins just frolicking all underneath me. So I could see them underneath the shark cage because, you know, the clarity of the water is amazing in Bass Strait. So that was just incredible. And I got so excited that I actually turned around uh, to the crew and I stopped and treaded water. I said, right, stop the boat. I want to get out of the cage. I want to play with these dolphins just for, you know, a few minutes. You know, please, will you let me? So anyway, um, I I actually had uh, Olympic legend Dawn Fraser. She's been part of my support crew for many, many years. And Dawn Dawn was the one calling the shots for Bass Strait. So I was actually saying to Dawn, please, can you stop the boat? And I could see, you know, when I looked into the faces of everybody, you know, on board the boat that, you know, they knew the kind of headspace that I was in at that point of time. So everybody was literally, you know, had, tears coming out of their eyes it was almost like someone had scripted it you know I, I was close to not being able to finish and and having these dolphins come and give me this inspiration and this lift was just amazing so I jumped out of the cage and I had my little play with the dolphins and it was just unreal like there was a couple of baby dolphins in the pod and they were literally amazing. like half a meter away from me they were just playing around Aww. me and I, I kind of the only thing I wished was that I could understand dolphin because I reckon they would have been going what do you reckon this human <laughs> being's doing all the way out here? She must be lost or something. You know? 
<laughs> so so I had the play and, <laughs> and I jumped back in the cage and we headed off. They stayed with me for a little while and then, you know, and then they headed off. But it was a real boost mentally just for me and, and I kind of had a really, you know, I guess I was feeling quite yeah. positive after that that I was going to make it that sort of just totally changed my mindset again. It was just, like I said, it's amazing how your mind can just really – you know, give you these signals and say, you can't, you've got nothing left in the tank, you're out, that's it, you're done. And then a change in thought process and, again, you found this, you've got this renewed vigour, you've got energy that you never knew you had. It's still, and don't get me wrong, it's still super, super hard to keep going and the pain doesn't subside, but you just find that little bit extra to keep pushing. That's amazing. Yeah, it must have given you such a boost because that, that swim took you, what, about 18 hours? Yeah, that's right. It took me just under 18 hours to complete. It was 97.4 kilometres and uh, <laughs> oh, wow. very, very, very oh, tough, very, very tough swim, that particular one. I was never happier than to see uh, Victoria than see Apollo Bay and um, see the sand come up because, you know, I've, I'd been swimming for so long and finally, you know, as I gradually saw the bottom, come into play as I got closer it's just a, such an exhilarating feeling to see the sand and then you know to reach the shoreline yes. and and stand up although my legs were like jelly because I'd been horizontal for so long so standing up took oh, a little bit yes. of adjustment but um yeah just a feeling of exhilaration you know to walk up that beach and and know that you've completed you know such a, a difficult task that's that's amazing, and I think you're you're the only person to have crossed that, aren't you? Yeah, that, and that's that a long time ago now. Crossed it. Yeah, ninety six. I did that. Ninety six. Yeah, and still no one's had a go, and no one else has done it. So I hope someone does because it's you know it's a it's a great challenge. But um, yeah, so I'm still fortunate enough to be the only one to have swum across Bass Strait. Yeah, and I suppose that was what ten years after you first started your marathon swimming. How did your sort of um, mechanics during the race change so I know you mentioned in your first one you had big m's and mars bars how did your feed sort of stops change over the years <laughs> that's a really good what question did you sort of eat what did you eat differently yeah well look I guess you know after that first one you know I started actually you know focusing on the marathons and learning a lot more about it and about the nutrition and a lot of a lot of people were using you know those carb gel things in the water and and you know I was learning about timings of eating as well because it's a it's a very personal thing but I guess you take on board um you know people that have been doing it for a long time and you speak to them and you ask you know how do you feed what do you feed on and so a lot of people do sort of 30 minute feeds seems to be the the regular thing so I started doing um 30 minute feeds and just having a very quick feed because one of the things with um the timings of feeding is also is that you know if you're swimming for instance like the English Channel and you've got tides on the you know both sides on the on the French side and the English side you can actually just miss a tide by like a couple of minutes which would mean that you they're so strong that you actually can't reach land so you're trying to get uh, a bit of a happy medium between getting the nutrition on board that you need to sustain you and keep you going but yet not waste too much time doing those feeds. So a feed would take maybe 30 seconds. That's sort of the the aim. As you get more tired, I guess right. they take longer because you're, you're craving also for that, I guess, interaction, that banter with your crew. It's a chance to go, hey, how am I going? Can you give me some info? Just, just you know, you just crave that. So although you, you know, not supposed to, you try, you try and limit it, but it does get longer as you get, 
I guess, more tired. But, yeah, it's a really, really fine balance. So, yeah, so I sort of found my groove with um, – I started on the carbohydrate drinks and the gels and then, you know, I found an energy bar that um, worked well for me um, and I used that for the rest of my sort of marathon swimming um, adventures and, and obviously just take on board usually, depending on the water, again, whether it's salt water, you're trying to counteract the salt. So you might use a mouthwash, you know, gargle a mouthwash very quickly. Um, right. You know, have – warm warm tea I often did that or a coffee if it's a long swim and you need the caffeine to keep you awake because you're you know trying to keep going for a long period of time so it all depends on the swim as to how how you actually you know think about your nutrition and what you're going to need but the basics never changed you know it was more towards that that you know obviously now like the Ironman type events they have a lot more of that wonderful food that you can just ingest really quickly in the gels and the goos and and that sort of thing so so that helps bananas Mm. are really great too because they're nice soft and easy food and they're not lovely and sweet they taste delicious when you've been in salt water for a long period of time so jelly beans are another good thing so all these little things that you know every marathon swimmer has their own I guess personal tastes and and ideas on what work for them some have soup you know some some have really bizarre things but I guess you learn to train with them as well and that and that's what changed the aspect of you know focusing on marathon swimming I actually learned so much more about the sport and what works well for my body and um and just through trial and error too you know as I said a cold water swim you'd be taking on board more warm food more warm drinks to sort of keep you warm on the inside whereas a hot water swim totally different you're in you know, you're taking lots of cold water drinks and a lot more fluids if you're in um, an environment where it's actually dehydrating you even more. Yeah, oh, absolutely. That makes sense. And did you, when you're train, when you were training for one of these big swims, did you generally do that in the pool, or was it a mixture between the pool and the um, ocean? Um, how did you manage all that kind of training leading up to a big swim, say for the English Channel, which you've crossed twice, I believe? Yeah, yeah. So, so using the English Channel as an example, yeah. I, I do my weekday, a lot of my weekday training um, in the pool because, you know, obviously with the pool swimming background. And, yeah. and I guess, you know, the change also in marathon swimming at that time was marathon swimmers were traditionally just people that were able to just keep going and they sort of didn't have that speed. But I guess the new breed of marathon swimmers that came through um, in the era that I started were, were more from pool swimming background. So they, they actually were fast and we were trying to sustain a fast speed over yes. a long period of time. So doing all of that training but just extending it. So it was like my pool swimming training but, you know, sessions might be 10Ks in the morning and, you know, another 10 eight to ten in the evening so it was just double the quantity pretty much in terms of the sets and the heart rate all of that sort of stuff so just just uh you know personified magnified I guess you know in terms of the intensity and then weekends was usually open water and a lot of the time the open water particularly is aimed at trying to acclimatize to the cold so for instance for the English Channel I swam during the winter time here in Port Phillip Bay so I, I went a whole winter swimming in the bay trying to extend the period of time that I could be out there so you know you start obviously acclimatizing you might do you know an hour or two and then as the temperature drops and we get closer to winter and it starts to get around that 10 degree mark you're trying to sort of sustain yourself for you know four or five hours out in that 10 degrees and and just continually push the the time limit that you can be out in the cold and part of that you know so obviously it's acclimatization both mentally and physically it's your mind going yeah I can get in and do this so you're trying to prepare for 
the worst case scenario. So for the English Channel sort of calculated it to be around that 12, 13 degree mark could be could be higher if they had a good summer. So but you prepare for the worst and you're always better to prepare in colder water than, you know, than obviously get there and be surprised that it's so cold. So and also, you know, you, you do a lot of silly things like, you know, I remember I didn't have any blankets on my bed. So, you know, during winter, I just sleep with a sheet, uh, walk around in shorts and thongs, you know, just again, trying to get that body used to <laughs> being cold. And and another aspect, which I knew blew away all the kids when I was training at the time was, you know, we used to have to do weigh-ins because, you know, if you're competing in states and nationals, you know, obviously coach wants you to be at your prime weight. Well, I had to put on weight for a lot of these cold water swims. Like the English Channel, I actually put on 10 kilos to prepare because body fat gives you insulation. So it's your friend when you're doing a long-distance swim. It protects your core. Um, hypothermia is one of the very big threats in, in the cold water when you're exposed because obviously, you know, you lose heat 25 times faster in water than you do in the air. So so I, I couldn't – I started off by just doing the carbohydrate, you know, beefing up my carbs, having a lot more pastas and rices, but I was finding – because I was training sort of 20Ks, 25Ks a day, um, I, I struggled just to maintain my weight, let alone to gain. So I then, again, you know, didn't know much about nutrition at that point in time. It was a bit of a trial and everything. So I, I just went to the high-fat feed. So I started eating, your, you know, fish and chips and your Mars bars and your KFC and <sighs> cakes and all that, all that, you know, stuff that you get told you're not allowed to have normally because it puts on weight. And um, and I actually had to drop my training back for a little, just in the beginning stages, like cut down the Ks so that I could actually start gaining weight. And then once the weight started to go on, then I sort of right. brought the training back up again. But, um, yeah, it was a really bizarre situation to be in that, you know, you're trying to, you're at your peak in terms of fitness, but you're trying to put on weight. So, you know, there's the trade-off between having the extra weight where you have obviously have to pull that weight through the water, but yet in a long-distance swim, the weight gives you buoyancy as well so body fat makes you float better so there's a bit of a, a trade-off but you wouldn't be able to complete the swim without that extra body fat when you're talking about being exposed in you know sort of 12 degree waters anything under 15 starts you know getting cold so depending on the time frame that you're there you, you know you really do need that extra body fat and so you go when you arrive in England um, you know all the channel swimmers they're, they're not the streamlined pool swimming bodies they're all you know beefed up with that extra body fat so it's quite a it's quite a you know yeah. different thing to I guess your mindset to take that on board and to go yeah yeah I'm you know I'm not I'm an elite athlete but <laughs> I don't look like an elite athlete right now <laughs> but yeah so so yeah so lots of body fat really helps so the most weight I've ever had to put on was 15 kilos when I swam Loch Ness because that was really cold and it's fresh water as well so that was you know that was um it was a bit of a struggle getting to that 15 kilo extra mark but um I needed it I tell you what it was so cold and hypothermia is a very very scary thing so cold yeah yeah lots of swimmers don't complain what was the temperature in Loch Ness temperature in Loch Ness oh, sorry no no that's okay yeah. it, it was about sort of seven eight degrees in Loch Ness yeah, so but it, Ooh, but again, yes, cold. seven degrees say <clears throat> in in salt water is like so much better than seven degrees in fresh water. So Loch Ness feels like you're swimming through syrup, like it's that heavy and and so much harder to pull your arms through the water because it's just yeah, like I said, the the viscosity of the water it just feels so much thicker because it's fresh and um, you're not getting that flotation. You jump in and you literally sink. Like it's it's quite 
yeah, it's quite scary and eerie to be in there and, and to feel that. And then the, the cold on top of that as well is just, yeah, it's one of the very scary factors of swimming Loch Ness. Yeah, and it's quite dark, isn't it, I believe? It is, what yes. Is? It's like the water, It's you don't see anything. Yeah, It's black because of all the peat in the mountains. There's yes. two huge mountain ranges on either side right. and the loch actually sits in a valley called the Great Glen and so, you know, when it rains, all the peat washes into the water and so you're looking down into this black void knowing that on average it's about 230 metres deep and, um, yes, yeah, so that's quite an eerie feeling Ooh. to look into the blackness and... <laughs> Be thinking about the monster that lives down there. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> could you see your hands? Like, could you see your hands going in, or is it that black you can't even see where your hands are entering? No, actually, I could see my hands. So I was able to actually see my hands. Um, the only place, okay, the, okay. the only place I've not been able to see my hands swimming underneath me was when I actually swam the Murray and the Murray River, longest river in Australia, and it starts off, um, you know, where it's coming from the snow mount at Mount, mount Kosciuszko. So it's quite a, a clear river when you start, but as you travel further down, particularly as you head uh, across to South Australia, um, it starts to become a lot more uh, brown and it's got a lot of alluvial clay in it so as I'm swimming in the Murray you're literally putting your hands in I can't see my hands at all underneath me so that that was an eerie perspective for me to be putting my hands in but not being able to see them underneath my body and touching things because there are a lot of snags and you know debris in the river so so that added a I guess a different mental element for me to cope with as well and on top of that you know, I guess I worried about the the snakes because there was a lot of tigers and browns that frequent yes. the the Murray River um, on the banks there, and they're particularly good swimmers as well. And tiger snakes are very yes. territorial, so you know when you swim through their particular area, if they see you coming, they actually will actually head out to you. So, yeah, some very close calls there. So that that scared me too because I touched stuff and I'd think, oh, I hope that wasn't a snake because they. They can actually swim under the water. <laughs> oh, gosh. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> can they really? Yep. I didn't know that. Yep, yeah, we learned. I thought they just swam on top. No, no, okay. no, we learned that very early on because oh. I had a fabulous support crew. I had I had two sort of IRBs um, during the course of the swim. One, one task was to stay beside me and to feed me and to help me with navigation and a kayak paddler on the other side as well, also for navigation. And one sort of scouting out in front, you know, about sort of, 200 meters out in front just checking for snakes and snags and they spotted I think on the third day of the swim they spotted a tiger snake and they thought they'd run over it just to scare it away and as they you know approached it it actually it actually ducked under the water and they were looking for it and they saw it pop up on the other side of the bank so they can actually swim from one side of the river to the other which was even scarier I didn't really need to know that but (laughs) oh no that's that's not good no not good at all (laughs) that's not good no. I mean swimming the Murray <laughs> I know. swimming the Murray River is a huge huge swim what is it over 2,000 kilometers yeah it was 2,438 kilometers like yeah so so obviously it wasn't a that, that was a wow. swim that I did in like a stage swim so every day I'd swim sort of between six and eight right. hours depending on you know some days were longer some days were shorter depending on how I was feeling you know sickness that sort of thing I had to swim every day as part of the you know the Guinness Book of Records so I I had to swim a minimum of two hours each day so so that was the shortest 
you know, time frame. But, yeah, so and that took um, three and a half months to complete. So I, I started, it was in, the, I think it was the 5th of November in 2000 and I finished the 18th of February 2001. So big chunk of time but an amazing, wow. an amazing scene, one of my favourites because I guess I got to see the Australian landscape and, and you know, meet the people that live along yeah. one of our greatest waterways and, and, and I was just embraced in every town. It was so lovely. In fact, the people really made that swim for me every every time I swam into a town I just get such a fabulous welcome and just yeah so much support which is again which is so unusual because normally when you do a swim like say across the English Channel or across Bass Strait the only people you see are your support crew you know beside you in the boat but the Murray was totally different because I could see people on the banks you know they'd be waving or they'd have big signs and you know they'd come out and cheer so it was um it was really lovely to have that kind of support and and it really helped keep me going for that such a long period of time. Yeah, that is a long period of time. How many people did you have in the support crew? So you had the IRB, the kayak beside and the kayak in front, and then did you have another boat following? Um, so the way it worked was for the first half of the swim, it uh, worked out logistically that I'd need um, a land crew as well because obviously we couldn't be based on the water. So right. we'd swim every day. So there was 12 people in my, uh, 12 to 15 people in my support crew. So land crew with two vehicles that would set up tents and caravans and move the, you know, the, the location for the where we were finishing each day, each day. So we had the sat phones and they'd be in, constant communication with my water crew and say Tammy's about 5Ks from finishing so go and set up camp here and so they would be waiting then for you know I'd be extracted they'd come down with the land vehicle extract me take me back to camp and obviously have food ready and and then you know we'd go to bed and prepare for the next day because we'd have to have lunches for and food packed on the on the IRBs for all of the crew so so the water crew was self-sufficient and the land crew was self-sufficient and then by the time we got to about halfway um, I was able to have a houseboat on the river which was a lot easier logistically so I could swim and literally go up to the back of the houseboat and just jump on and then you know food and bed was ready there which was really good um only purely because the river's not deep enough to sustain a houseboat the whole way so um fortunately for me I had a houseboat come up from South Australia again working out the logistics to you where do you get your houseboat from so I got the houseboat to travel up from uh, the bottom of South Australia, from um, Murray Bridge, and it met us in Robinvale, and then it travelled down with us, and um, and then that was a lot easier. But I still had to keep a, a land crew because we needed to get fuel, we needed to get supplies, and if anything happened, um, also, you know, if if say I got bitten by a snake or you know caught on snag, I mean, I was concussed a few times running into snags during the course of the swim, so you know anything could happen. So we needed to also wow. know the nearest hospitals you know doctors so we had to have a lot of maps the CFA maps were fantastic because they had grid references so because a lot of the time you're you know you're swimming through private property you know there's no access so you've got to you've got to know where you can get in and out of the river so there was a lot of planning involved and that was in fact 12 months worth of logistical planning and it was a massive exercise to you know work out all the safety aspects of it because really when you're doing a swim any type of swim safety is always your number one priority for you know both both myself and the crew to know if something goes wrong worst case scenarios what do we do what's the plan how, how do we manage it how do we handle it so that we're, we're all looked after and taken care of so so that was a big part of it 
Yeah, that, that's an amazing accomplishment. Absolutely amazing. Has anyone followed up and done that um, well, after you or are you the only person? I, I'm not sure. I think I'm the only person still. I, I actually did it following in the footsteps of a gentleman by the name of Graham Middleton and he was the first person to swim the Murray and he actually lived it in Corriong at the, you know, the start of the Murray and he swam it and I, I broke Graham's record by 35 days because he he swam um, just to the end. Wow. Yeah, he swam to the end of the Murray. He was about 100 kilometres short of the of the Murray mouth. He didn't go all the way. He finished at a place called Wellington, which is actually the last town on the river, and then you can sort of swim a bit further out to where it flows to the Southern Ocean. So that's another 100K. So he was so exhausted that being the first, he set the record at Wellington. So I got to Wellington and broke his record by 35 days and then I continued for another couple of days and um, actually became the first person to swim all the way out to to where it flows out to the Southern Ocean, so down at Goolwa there. So so that was um, pretty special again, a great, you know, a wonderful memory and um, lovely to be able to do that and just the connection with the people and my support crew, just oh, amazing people yes. that look after you. You know, it, it's, a, it's a massive team effort. You can never do any of these things yourself and you just need great people around you that you, you trust implicitly. I mean, I literally trust my life in the hands of the crew because they're making the decisions. You know, I can't see things coming. I can't see a snake or a shark or whatever coming. They're the ones that are making the decisions and saying, hey, we need to do this. So I just, you know, I'm in their hands literally and, gee, I've been so fortunate. And through the Life Saving, actually, I, I met many wonderful people. It was the boating squad from um, Life Saving from the days when I did Life Saving. They, they'd come on all my swims and um, and actually helped me out. So oh, it's really amazing. nice to have that connection between, you know, my Life Saving crew and, and you know, coming on board for the, for the big swims as well and, you know, working on the logistics together. And, yeah, it's just been a, a wonderful experience. Yeah, absolutely. I was just going to ask you a question about um, representing Australia at the World Champs in the um, open water. Was that a twenty-five k race? It was actually. It was the first. It was the first time that yeah. um, sort of marathon swimming, I guess, had been included into the World Champs. So for me, um, you know, I, I was a bit of an underdog going in because first of all, I had only really started marathon swimming seriously, like doing international competitions the year before. I'd been overseas and started doing a few of the swims from like Capri to Naples, and there was a bit of a, a circuit happening. So I did a few few of those. Sims and then came back to Australia. Um, I think it was early, early, late 1990 when we had the trials. And so at that particular point in time, Shelley Taylor Smith, um, she was ranked uh, world number one in marathon swimming, an amazing swimmer and um, someone that I've been fortunate enough to learn a lot about. And she's taken me under her wing and embraced me in, in many ways and helped me train. Um, at that time, also there was Susie Moroni, who was also she'd done the fastest crossing of the English Channel double crossing, and um, Tracy Wickham had decided to make a comeback, and this was going to be her comeback swim. And Laurie Lawrence, her coach, had been sort of you know touting how fit she was and that she was going to win the trials and all that. So it, it was actually you know it was quite a spectacle when we you know came back for the trials, and they were in Perth, yeah. um, in the Swan River, where where the actual um, race was held, and I remember. Tracy ended up being pulled out of the the swim. I, I can't remember what happened. I, they said that she had too much grease on her bathers and they'd filled up with water. I'm not quite sure. But anyway, she didn't finish um, and I managed to slip <laughs> into second place behind Shelley Taylor-Smith and that was just one of the most exciting things for me because I'd made my first Australian team and, you know, became part of the Dolphins and, 
it was just, yeah, it was so surreal to, you know, represent your country and to think, wow, going to the World Championships. So after that, I I spent a lot of time. So Chelly actually invited me to come and live with her in Perth and to train. So I did for about four or five months, I actually lived with Shelley and we trained together at the city of Perth with Bernie Mulroy and the squad there and we did all our swimming together and it was just fantastic because uh, Peter Galvin, who was also in the team, um, also trained at the city of Perth. So there was three of us that were in the 25K that were training together. So, you know, to do those massive sets together was just incredible to be able to sort of prepare and and get ready for, for something like that. So um, it was just you know, a, a great build-up. And I was actually super fit. I was really, really fit and I, I thought I'd do really well. And on the day of the race, I, I think nerves got the better of me and I, I didn't expect to finish six. I was quite disappointed when I finished six. So I, I at least expected to sort of be up near Shelley because she she won the, well, the race, which was fabulous. But I sort of expected that we'd go one-two. So that, that was probably one of the lower moments of my swimming. But I guess, you know, it was bit of nerves first time on the on the stage representing Australia so yeah it was just one of those things at that time that I probably wasn't mentally as as good as I could have been to for that particular race yeah but what an accomplishment to get there and do that I mean that's that's amazing and fantastic and wonderful that you were able to train with Shelly Shelly during that time oh incredible like you know and we're lifelong friends you know I spoke to Shelly just last week so it's really nice you know like I said the the enduring friendships that you build are you know probably what I, I I cherish most now out of all of this it's not so much you know the swims or the records or you know all the accomplishments it's it's the people that you've connected with in a very special way and um I as you get older you realize that that that's what it's all about isn't it it's a human connection and I guess co it has shown us that even more that you know we as a species need to be connected we need we need that love and support and you know there's nothing that beats having you know great people around you and people that care about you so you know that's why I feel really really blessed to have you know been able to do what I do because I think as I've traveled around the world it's funny people embrace you in such a different way when you're embarking on I guess such an unusual and unique event so you do meet many people from different facets and because it's not just about the swim it's about the logistics you know, you, you, you're finding people that can drive boats, that can read tides, that can do or have all these different skill sets to support you and to help you get the best results. So you're, you're meeting so many different people and it's, um, yeah, it's it's a really lovely, really lovely opportunity to, to be able to travel the world and do it. I, that was that were my days as like, I guess, my international travel days. You know, some kids go and travel the world and uh, I guess do their backpacking. Well, for me, I felt like the marathon swimming was my, my experience doing that. I was sort of travelling from country to country doing marathon swims and meeting fabulous people and learning so much more about, you know, I guess not only the place that I was in because you see it from, I guess, the eyes of a local as well because they really embrace you and help you sort of get around. So that's been a really good part of it too. Yeah, absolutely. I just I wanted to touch on what I think is a pretty amazing accomplishment. When you were 38, you swam from New York to Sandy Hook Tell us about that swim. How did that all come about? Well, okay. So I I actually had been talking to – I have a kayaker who's um, paddled for me whenever I do – I met him when I swam around Manhattan in 1997. I did a race around Manhattan and his name's Richard. I call him Ricardo and he's like my – we call him the, right. sh- the Sherpa. And so <laughs> I was talking to Richard and right. – uh, <laughs> And, you know, we've been talking about other swims because Richard had been with me on uh, three swims around Manhattan 
two two solos and a relay. And also, Richard, this this is the level of devotion. Richard actually took his kayak and came to Scotland and paddled beside me in Loch Ness. So, you know, just oh, yeah, lovely. I know, just beautiful, beautiful people. So, anyway, so close relationship there. So, and we'd just been talking about different sims, and he just pointed out to me that you know that there was a record standing from New York to New Jersey, and it had been in the record books for sort of over eighty years. And and he put me into contact with a, another man by the name of Tim Johnson, who's a bit of a a gun over in New York in terms of tides and and a historian for a lot of the uh, marathon swims over in the US. And so it sort of developed from there. There and um, I started training and thought, yep, well, I'll have a go at that. So um, I was fortunate enough. Um, I started at Battery Park, um, which is where you start the race from Manhattan, except instead of going around the island, this time I was heading straight down to New Jersey and had to navigate some, you know, pretty strong tides and currents and um, and also get some, yes. some pretty big permissions because we had the US Coast Guard sort of pull up beside us with the guns out and everything too. You have to get permission because it's a shipping lane. <laughs> yeah, you know, I had an aircraft yes. carrier that was over a kilometre mm-hmm. long co-pass. That was a pretty scary thing during the scene too. So a few few different things I had to wow. negotiate there, but managed to get to um, Sandy Hook in New Jersey and smash the record by over two hours. And it's a pretty big news event over there. Made made um, you know all the New York New Jersey news channels and and the mayor of New Jersey of the particular province where I finished. It's called Monmouth County, and he came down and um, basically declared that July twenty first, which was the day that I did, broke the record, was from this day forward going to be Tammy Van Wisser Day, and that all the kids you know in the <gasps> primary and secondary schools were going to learn about my achievements and in particular this this swim so that that was pretty special but also even more special was um the lady that had set the record was Gertrude Edderley and she was the first woman to swim the English Channel I think it was 1925 she swam the English Channel when a lot of men thought were laughing at her and said you know a female can't swim the English Channel and so she was a real pioneer for women marathon swimmers and quite a childhood hero of mine um and I'd managed to she, she'd passed away about three or four years before I did the swim and she was like age 90, I think it was 96, so she lived a ripe old age. But uh, I meant to get into contact with her family. So she didn't have any kids and she wasn't married, but, you know, all her her sisters and brothers, kids, you know, cousins, um, we had a bit of a get-together, like a dinner two nights before I did the swim because I wanted to really honour Gertrude. So the swim was not just about, you know, trying to break the record, but it was really about honouring Gertrude and her contribution to women in sport. And I really wanted to point that out and I guess to inspire other girls out there no matter what their walk of life to say hey do you know what you're worthy and you can if you have a crack there's no reason why you can't you can't do something so so it was really lovely and I was honored and humbled to meet the family and they were on board my boat as well on my support boat so when I finished you know they were all there and they're all cheering me on and and probably the most special thing to come out of it was that they said you know if Gertrude was still alive she'd be so honored that it was you that broke her record so lots of lots oh, of wonderful, so wonderful memories there too so yeah that was a really special swim really really special swim yeah that that's amazing <laughs> What I wanted to finish off with, and I I ask this of all my guests on the podcast, what has been your all-time favourite swimming set in the pool? What is your sort of go-to, what was your go-to set that you always enjoyed? Go-to set, okay. So go-to set generally for me on a Saturday morning was the 100 hundreds. And we usually do them on the, (laughs) usually start on the 130 and then try and drop you know, sort of 10 seconds each 10 
So and then repeat. So we go one thirty. 125, 120, and then usually go back to 130 again. So, and then the last 10 would be, you know, actually the last two would be dives and you try and like swim <laughs> pretty good time. So, not that I, <laughs> not that I always enjoyed that set, but I always found that set challenging. And, and, you know, by the end of it, I'd, on a Saturday morning, I, you know, I'd think, wow, I'm glad I did that. So that was one of my, my, my fun sets to do, I guess. <laughs> That in an oh. that in an hour of four hundreds. <laughs> that, that that was also another one. How many four hundreds could you do in an hour? Oh, that's a good set. Okay. Mm. I'll, I'll leave you to do that yourself. I don't think I'd sign up for that, but I can see that it'll be useful as a marathon swimmer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Only something a marathon swimmer would want to do. <laughs> was that with those hundred hundreds? Did you used to do those in that twenty-five meter cinder pool? Uh, no, no. At that stage, I was actually training no. at Haylebury Pool under Wayne Laws. So, um, oh, yes, okay. Ted had sold the cinder pool at that point in time. So I'd have to, I'd, I'd gone to Wayne and was training with him. And so he, he was a hard taskmaster, the old Lawsy. And, um, yes, he'd be known yeah. to get me to put the, the bucket, you know, you have the belt with the bucket trailing along behind you. So a lot of yes. things were done with the bucket as well, just to add a bit of spice into it as Wayne would say so yeah (laughs) he he was a really hard taskmaster but I you know absolutely fantastic got me in the shape of my life to swim across Bass Strait and and also you know to swim around Manhattan where you're really needing that speed and and endurance so so great times great times I wish I was that fit now (laughs) (laughs) oh I know don't we all (laughs) (laughs) oh dear Thank you so much for joining us today, Tammy. It's been wonderful um, sort of reliving your swimming journey and everything that you've contributed to marathon swimming and um, wishing you the best of luck for everything moving forward. Oh, thank you so much. It's just been such a pleasure to chat to you. It's always so much fun. Yeah, oh, so lovely catching up. Okay, well, take care. And you too. Okay, bye for now. Bye. There you go, bye. Thank you for all your messages saying how much you like the podcast. It really means a lot. If I can ask for one thing in return, it is that you rate and review the show. It really helps other people find the podcast. So go along to Apple or Spotify or Google podcast platforms, wherever you're listening, leave a review and leave a, re- uh, leave a rating. Till next time, happy swimming. Bye for now. <laughs>